0: into the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Genesis, chapter 3, as we continue our sermon series through the book of Genesis. We have, in the Genesis narrative, come to a pivotal moment in the narrative. We've come to the introduction of conflict into God's perfect world. And as we read and, and discussed last week, sin has entered into the hearts of man Sin has entered in and corrupted the entire world, and sin has entered and brought shame and guilt upon the entire human race. And much as we saw last week, the, uh, the, the guilt and shame as Adam and Eve moved from naked and unashamed in Genesis chapter 2 to scrambling to fashion a makeshift covering for themselves in Genesis 3 today, we give further consideration to the radical consequences of sin as the Lord God enters the garden. In Genesis 2, the Lord God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathed into him the breath of life. He drew near to Adam and entered into covenant with him. And seeing that there was something lacking in Adam, he fashioned a helper suitable for him. And they enjoyed intimate fellowship with their God. But now, as we see in Genesis 3, things have changed. Where Adam and Eve once enjoyed the glorious presence of God in the garden, now God enters the garden saying, where are you Adam. And so with those stunning words, we want to consider the nature of our sin, the nature of our fall and the consequences and effects of sin on humanity. And if you have found your place in Genesis chapter three, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Beginning in verse 6, the word of the Lord says, The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She gave also to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife Heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he he said, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. While our verses that we will consider this morning are primarily verses 8 through 13, we got a running start into the text to consider the fall of Adam and Eve again. Because up until that moment, all that Adam and Eve had ever known was God's goodness. And we don't know how long they were in the garden before the fall. We don't know how long they had basked in the glory of God's presence and goodness. But however long they were in the garden, all they had ever known was sweet, intimate fellowship with God. They have known his presence and they have beheld his wisdom and they have seen his power in creation and they have received the truthfulness of his word and enjoyed the bounty of his provision in the garden. And yet through the serpent's temptation, they come to doubt God's goodness and to reject his provision. And the one thing that God had forbidden to them, they looked upon it and they called it good for themselves, rebelling against God and transgressing against his law. Having been tempted by the serpent, the woman considered the forbidden fruit from the tree to be delightful to look at and good for food and desirable for wisdom. And she eats and then gives to her husband and he ate. And so the consequences of Adam's sin then begin to manifest themselves as they begin to cover themselves and hide themselves in the garden. They die spiritually immediately being spiritually separated from God. And they, uh, for the first time in their lives, experience shame. And as we consider and as we consider the depth of shame in Adam and Eve experience and the lengths to which they go to hide their guilt and sin, we will see the, the great distance, the great chasm that is then fixed between them and God. And so the consequence of sin then is alienation, separation, distance, First, Adam from his wife, as he is separated from her, he is the, 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 the wife that he had received as a good gift from God, he is now alienated from and separated from and no longer finding the joy that he once found in her. Likewise, we experience alienation and separation from others. In this sin-fallen world, all of our relationships are marked by that distrust, skepticism, disunity, and shame of our guilt. But more than that, there is alienation between man and God. As man transgresses the law of God and rebels against him, he separates himself from the purpose for which God had made him. And in Adam, likewise, we are all alienated from God. Because as we saw in Genesis chapter 2, Adam is our federal head, our covenant representative. And in Genesis 3 then, because Adam represents us, when we read that Adam ate so we eat. And in Genesis 3, we are then doing more than just reading ancient history about Adam and Eve, but we are in many ways holding up a mirror to look at ourselves and all the human race as we attempt to gain understanding of the fallen human condition that we experience. And so the Holy Scriptures give us insight into the nature of this alienation from God. As Pastor Chris read a few moments ago, we are alienated and hostile in our minds. And this is expressed in our evil actions in rebellion against God. Ephesians 2 calls us children of wrath under God's condemnation. Romans 6 calls us slaves, servants of sin. Romans 5 calls us enemies of God. And Isaiah summarizes it this way in Isaiah 59. But your iniquities are separating you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. Though Adam was created by God, formed out of the dust of the earth. And God breathes into him the breath of life as, as if being face to face. Isaiah says, our sins have hidden God's face from us, and he does not listen. This is the condition of every man before God outside of Christ. And oftentimes, we don't consider the depth and the significance of our sin in our alienation from God. In our flesh, we like to think God is generally pleased with us. He's happy with us. God's not angry with us. After all, God is a loving God, isn't he? And we're going to see here in Genesis 3 that God certainly is loving as he comes to Adam and Eve in the garden. But God's love brings him to judgment over rebellion and sin against him and his law. You see, I once counseled with a a young boy and his mother as, as she brought him to me. He was wanting to be baptized and it amounted to the fact that he wanted to be baptized because all of his friends had been baptized, but I asked him the pointed question. I said, sir, do you think that God is pleased with you? Do you think God is generally happy with you? And he responds delightfully. Yes, I think God is happy with me. I'm, I'm a good boy after all. And I began challenging him through the 10 commandments. How many lies have you told in all your life? How many things have you stolen? How many times have you dishonored father and mother? And he began to weep over his sin because for the very first time he realized that he's not the good boy that he thought he was, but that he is a rebel against God and his will for him. And this is the condition that we find ourselves in, hiding ourselves and hiding our sin from God, thinking that we're okay and that God is somehow going to overlook our iniquity. But in Adam, we are guilty. And in our own personal transgressions, we are guilty. But the marvelous thing about Genesis 3 is that God comes to man. God comes, though alienation has been brought by man, God comes to remedy that alienation and separation. Though separated, alienated, and spiritually dead, God comes calmly and graciously seeking Adam out in the garden. And so such is what he's doing for you, dear sinner, today, calling to you, where are you? And dear Christian, such is what we celebrate this morning as we re- remember that we have been reconciled to God, though alienated and hostile in our, mi- our minds, he has saved us and redeemed us. God comes to man to remedy the alienation of our relationship. And so as we consider God's remedy and we consider the alienation that we have in our lives because of our sin, there are two things that I want us to see from this text this morning. The first is our alienation from others. First, I want to see our alienation from others because we want to consider first this separation, the effects of sin between Adam and Eve, because before the fall, their relationship was beautiful. We read in Genesis 2, the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. As he beholds his wife and the the privilege that it is to know her and to see God's provision for him, he cherishes his wife, recognizing her as a good gift from God and recognizing her as suitable and compatible to him. Then we read in verse 25, both the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. The two of them together living in total integrity, total trust, and total unity, having no shame and nothing to hide. Their relationship was one of harmony and intimacy as Adam led his wife as head of the family and woman submitted to his wife as a suitable helper. And they together shared the original righteousness that God had bestowed upon them by making them in his image. But as we turn to chapter three, we see them rebelling against God. We see God's created order and design turned upside down as Adam is, excuse me, as Eve is tempted by the serpent and Adam stands passively by. As Eve usurps headship and Adam neglects his headship. As God's word is questioned, did God really say? As God's goodness and his truthfulness is called into question, this beautiful design and this picture of the glory of God in this marital union is marred and broken and god's reign is rejected as eve sees that the fruit is good for food and desirable for wisdom she eats and gives to her husband and he eats also taking willingly rebelling against god desiring to become their own moral sovereign rejecting god's rule rejecting god's reign they desire that power for themselves And so as we look then to verse 8, we see the brokenness of this relationship. But that brokenness begins with Adam's own brokenness. Look with me again at verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid." Adam has lost his original righteousness and in his shame and guilt, he immediately tries to fix the problem and create a solution of his own doing. In verse 7, we saw that he began sowing fig leaves together for himself to try to cover his iniquity and cover his shame. But then here in verse 10, we see him hiding from God as God comes seeking for him in the garden. I heard you coming, Lord, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Notice the fourfold use of the word I there as Adam responds to God. I heard you coming. I was afraid. I was naked, so I hid. Adam knows that something is wrong in himself. Adam has lost his sense of being comfortable in his own skin before God and before his wife. As one author noted that I read, he has become radically insecure because his sin has brought guilt and shame. The sense of inner peace that he once knew has been replaced by a sense of shame that will overflow into every aspect of his life, including the relationship with his wife. The only other person who is there with him fell into sin with him, and she also is immediately affected by the shame and guilt of their sin. And so we see this alienation. This separation, this shame immediately unfold in their response to God's inquiries regarding their nakedness. God calls to Adam, where are you? In verse 11, it says, then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Listen to Adam's reply. The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. As God comes and inquires about their disobedience, notice that Adam doesn't say, yes, Lord, I disobeyed and I violated your law. No, he says, that woman that you gave me, it's her fault. She gave me of the fruit. And in reality, and I want to save this for a few moments, but in reality, he says, the woman you gave me, God. It is your fault, God. Everything was fine in the garden before you gave me this woman. And I ate. He cast blame onto her, shifting blame and responsibility from himself and pointing fingers at everyone else, casting guilt on his wife and guilt on the Lord God. Note the shift in Adam's thinking about his wife. This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But now, he says, that woman you gave me, She gave me the fruit and I ate. But also notice the shift in his thinking about God. As Adam numbers the animals and names the animals as God brings them before him in Genesis chapter 2, he realizes that there is no helper suitable, compatible for him. And God in his goodness and wisdom gives him Eve made out of his own side to be with him. And he rejoices in God's gift and receives that from God. But now in Genesis 3.12, the woman that you gave me, God, she has caused me to sin. But this blame shifting is not unique to Adam. No Eve joins in in the blame shifting. God asks her, what have you done? And Eve responds, the serpent, it was the serpent. He deceived me and then I ate. She claims that she's a victim of deceit and points her finger at the serpent. Neither Adam nor Eve give an honest confession of sin. They each insist that somebody else is at fault. But it is that honest confession of sin that God come into the garden seeking to draw out of them. You see, we saw last week that God's ordered design is turned upside down as the serpent who is created, being under the influence of Satan, approaches Eve and tempts her and then she gives to her husband, Adam, and he eats. Satan turns God's design upside down. But God, in reconciling himself back to man, comes to Adam first. Adam, I appointed you as head of your family and head of the garden, and it is your responsibility for the sin that has occurred. And after Adam blames God and his wife, God turns to Eve, and woman who was supposed to be in submission to her husband following his leadership was deceived and then usurps responsibility and gives to her husband. Through Satan, Excuse me, though Satan, through the serpent, turned God's design upside down, God addresses man and woman in his good created order to show them that their fallen condition is the product of their own disobedience. Adam and Eve, this is your responsibility. And so as we think about this morning and this blame shifting and this finger pointing that occurs here in Genesis chapter 3, we often experience the same overflow of shame in our lives that Adam experienced, don't we? I mean, the fact that all of us showed up wearing clothes this morning is evidence, testimony to the fact that we do experience that same overflow of shame. An original sin affects us. It invades every facet and every relationship in our lives as we try to distance ourselves from one another. We wear masks to cover up our own insecurities and iniquities. We experience depression, anxiety, anger, self-hatred because of our own sinfulness. And instead of seeking help and comfort from others, and most importantly from God, we bottle it up and cover it up, hiding our shame from others and pretending that everything is all right. And then from that posture of covering ourselves with fig leaves, we then seek uh, self-righteousness, trying to justify ourselves before God, to make up for our shortcomings. And when we inevitably fail to obtain the standard that we set for ourselves, We repeat the cycle. We go back into our sin and shame because we've failed to measure up to the standard that we've set for ourselves. This is what sin does to us. And yet God comes calling gently and passionately in the garden. Where are you? Stop hiding, stop covering yourself, stop sowing fig leaves, and bring the burden and effects of your sin to me. As Peter says in First Peter five, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. You see, dear Christian, the answer to our own sense of guilt and shame and, and desire to blame shift and put it off on others is it is not a sense of self-confidence or self-esteem as the world would have us think. But for the Christian, the answer is found in self-worth. I was reminded of the words of the song by the Gettys that um, of, goodness gracious, I have the lyrics here but not the name of the song, excuse me, but in one of their songs they say, two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. And in that song, we are reminded that at the same time, we are unworthy of God and his grace because we are alienated and separated from him. But because of Christ Jesus, we are brought near and we are reminded uh, that it is our self-worth, not our self-confidence or our self-esteem, that it is in Christ that our value is Fixed at the cross we must not find our own worth in our goodness or in our strength or in our possessions but we must find our worth and identity in Christ alone the remedy to the sense of guilt and shame that we experience in this fallen world is to look to Christ and find our worth and value in him and then in Christ We can pursue transparent, loving, selfless relationships with others that would otherwise be marked by selfishness and blame shifting. It is by God's grace alone that we can pursue these kinds of God-honoring relationships. And so, dear Christian, instead of blaming others and pointing fingers, we can take responsibility for our own sinfulness. Instead of saying, it's their fault, we can say, well... After all, I am a child of Adam. It is no surprise that I would sin. I confess my sin and I ask for forgiveness. And so we ought to respond to sin with confession and repentance rather than denial and blame shifting. We do this all the time, don't we? Uh, let me give you one example regarding the sin of anger. Oftentimes, in our anger, what do we say? He made me so angry. She made me so angry. We're blame shifting. It's really their fault. Husbands and wives do this one to another. Uh, in, in relational conflicts within the workplace and another place, we say, That person makes me so angry. Abdicating our responsibility for our own response of sin and anger. But we also blame shift in our acknowledgement of sin. My wife probably will amen this here in a minute. We say, I did this and I'm so sorry, but you did this. I know that I was wrong, but you also did this, which caused me to sin in the way that I did. Dear Christian, our relationships are broken and they remain broken because we fail to acknowledge our own sin, but we blame shift and point fingers to one another." I'm reminded of the words of James in James 4. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the passions that wage war within you? And what James is teaching us there is that in the the conflicts that we experience, particularly here in the context of the church, he's saying, what is the source of the conflict? What is the source of the fighting and the animosity and the alienation between you? Is it not the passions? Is it not the inner desires that wage war within yourself? The conflict is not caused by the disagreement or the thing in question, nor is it caused by the other person. It is caused by our sinful, selfish desires when we idolize something so much that we're willing to sin to get it or willing to sin when we don't. And so Christians ought to take responsibility for their sin and confess it first to God and then to those they have sinned against. If we shift blame and cast guilt on others for our sins, we are really just sinning again and not actually repenting. And so, dear friends, we see the horrible effects of the fall of sin and the brokenness of the relationships between Adam and Eve as they are alienated from one another. Their relationship is marred to such a degree that it will never be the same again. And yet the interpersonal conflict uh, and alienation that they experience is truly only symptomatic of a greater alienation and a greater separation between them and God. And so the second thing that I want us to see is the alienation from God. Because it's this chief alienation that lies at the root of all others. Again, think back to their relationship with God before the fall. It, it's all very good. God himself pronounces this over his creation in Genesis 1 All is very good. Indeed, Adam and Eve are made in the image of God, reflecting God's righteousness and holiness and his glory. They're entered into covenant relationship with God and they're enjoying his bountiful, bountiful provision and his gracious generosity. But Adam decided to rebel. Adam made the choice to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, desiring to be like God and become his own moral sovereign. He wanted the one thing that God forbade him. And many might read this text and they think to themselves, well, he just ate some fruit. What is the big deal? Many would see this as a small offense, not an atrocious treason against the king of glory. Oh, but Adam's fall begins with him tolerating the presence of Satan in the garden as this serpent comes to tempt them. He tolerates the presence of the cunning and deceptive servants. He abdicates his responsibility in headship over his wife and head of humanity, failing to be the protector and leader that God ordained him to be. Adam fails by allowing God's word to become subject to man's judgment instead of subjecting himself and his entire household to the word of God. And after subjecting God's word to man's judgment, he questions and challenges God's goodness and truthfulness. And Adam knew in that moment of partaking of the tree of knowledge and good and evil that he would be calling God a liar. Not only is the penalty not real, and not only is God not telling the truth, but he's not good because he's withholding something from me that is good for me. And Adam knew the consequence. Adam knew that God had strictly forbidden eating of the tree, and he knew the consequence was certain death. But Adam, and Adam beyond that, knew that he would be severing his relationship with God and severing the relationship between God and all of his offspring. Yet he blatantly and intentionally ate, rebelling against God, desiring to become God himself. This was not just eating some fruit this was all out war and hostility against his creator as he raises his fist against god to become his own god it was cosmic treason and immediately sin did not did, did not pay what it promised he scrambles to cover himself with fig leaves he hides himself among the trees of the garden verse 8 says and he's hiding himself even among god's generous provision to him and though he knew that god would be is omniscient and omnipresent he attempts to hide from god anyways what folly as adam scrambles to figure out and undo this mistake this sin this transgression against God but he cannot and so God comes walking in the evening breeze God comes walking to man calling out to him God comes to the garden the place that was intended to be the special presence of God on earth mediated through Adam the high priest of the garden that has now been ruined and marred by the fall God comes to the garden And he calmly calls to Adam, Where are you? God is not here seeking information. God is all-knowing and all-present. He knows everything and he is everywhere. His eternal attributes seen in creation remind us that God is not asking these questions out of ignorance. Nor did the fall of man take God by surprise. He is the God who has decreed all things from the beginning. But God comes to man asking, where are you? Where are you? Not seeking information, but seeking to draw out of Adam his own confession. And this shows us that God does not intend to come only in judgment and condemnation. But as we will discover later in this chapter, God comes in mercy and grace, promising forgiveness, atonement, and redemption. God comes asking this question Because he already knows the condition of Adam. And he comes in grace and mercy. And this is further highlighted in the name of God. Look with me again at verse 8. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening and breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So. The Lord God called out to man and said to him, Where are you? If you remember last week, we made note of the fact that the name of God in Genesis chapter 2 is the Lord God. As God enters into covenant with his creatures, he refers to himself by his covenant name, Yahweh Elohim. He reminds them of his nearness and his self-revelation of himself to them. But in deception, the serpent uses only the name God, distancing man from God and his goodness and Eve follows suit, saying, well, the, well, that God's said this. But as the Lord God comes back to the garden, Moses resumes using the covenant name of God. While this covenant is broken, God comes in covenant love and affection for his people once again as the Lord God. He is unchangeable and God takes the initiative to come to them sovereignly and lovingly to right the wrong and atone for the transgression. Though Adam is ashamed and he now has knowledge that he never had before and he is corrupt and dead in his sin and alienated from God. God comes to him and while he is even blaming God and pointing a finger at God and said it's the woman that you gave me God comes to Adam and while their relationship is marked by separation and hostility and enmity God comes to man not in just in judgment though judgment is present but not just in judgment, God comes in mercy, calling tenderly to Adam, where are you? But I'm reminded this morning that Adam's sin is not just his own. For Adam is the head of the human race, our covenant head, our federal head. And likewise with Adam, we are spiritually dead, separated from God, alienated, hostile in our minds, and at enmity with God, unwilling and unable to return to God and save ourselves. I'm reminded this morning of the horrific words that Paul records in Romans 3. It is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers venom under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the wretched state of you and I, offspring of Adam. In Adam, we have fallen, being guilty, not only of our own personal transgressions, but of original sin itself. We are guilty in Adam and condemned and under a curse. But the good news of the gospel is not that we must pull ourselves up and go to God, but God comes to us calling sinners. Where are you? As God called to Adam, so he calls to you this morning. Where are you? Though you have violated God's law, and though you are guilty of Adam's sin and your own personal iniquity, and though all you will ever be is a covenant breaker, guilty and hostile in your mind, alienated and separated from God, God comes to you and says, Where are you? And he comes to you this morning in the person and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who says of himself, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, that which is alienated, that which is separated, that which is lost, that which is gone. I I have come to seek and to save. I've come to redeem and to restore. I've come to reconcile man back to God, that they may be made new creatures and they may receive God's grace. And so, the call to you, dear sinner, where are you? God says to you this morning stop hiding and confess your sin. There is nowhere that you can go outside of God's sight. David says in Psalm 139, if you were to go to the depths of hell, God is there. If you were to go into the heights of heaven, God is still there. There is nowhere that you can flee that God does not know your sin. And you will stand before him on the last day, guilty before him. But God calls to you, where are you? Stop hiding and confess your sin. But he also says to you stop sowing fig leaves. Stop trying to right the wrong. Stop uh, appealing to the works of your own hands. Stop trying to cover yourself. All things are naked and open before him. Stop hiding and confess. Stop sowing. And trust in the righteousness of Christ alone. There are white robes of righteousness to cover your iniquity. And your sins will be imputed to Christ on the cross of Calvary. And his righteousness will be imputed to you. God calls to you, where are you? Stop running, stop hiding. Come to Christ and trust in him alone. You'll be saved. You will no longer be alienated. You'll no longer be hostile in your mind towards God. You'll no longer hate Him and His ways, but you'll long to please Him and to serve Him. You'll be renewed and restored. You'll be, over time, conformed into the image that you were once made in that was broken and marred. You'll be renewed and restored over time into that image of God again. Oh, in Christ Jesus, there is salvation for you, dear sinner. God calls to you, where are you? But dear Christian, we are also reminded here in this text of the grace that we have received in Christ Jesus. Oh, we are reminded that in the true and better Adam, the last Adam, Christ Jesus, we stand justified before the Lord God it is it is upon that doctrine justification by faith alone that we take our stand as a church against so many false religions that we are justified merely and only solely by Christ alone and his righteousness we are justified because he paid the penalty, not only of our own personal transgressions, but he paid the penalty of Adam's original sin as he rebelled against God. And it was passed down through inheritance to all of us. Christ Jesus paid the penalty for his sin and for our sins so that we might be justified standing right before God, not, no, not alienated, not separated, but drawn near and justified. It is through Christ Jesus that we receive the gift of adoption as sons and daughters of God. Dear friend, Christ did not die to make us morally neutral before God. No, He takes us from the kingdom of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of His dear Son, righting the wrong and paying our penalty and then imputing His righteousness to us that before the Father we might be perfect as He is perfect. We who are enemies, children of wrath, and slaves of sin are adopted into the family of God and called sons of and daughters we are brought near to the God that we have sinned against and rebelled against in Christ we are sanctified we're being renewed and restored and and being conformed more and more to his image that which was lost in Adam is being restored in Christ in Christ we have the gift of perseverance and Jared made note as we sang uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I almost forgot the name of that song as well. As we we sang that song, one of the lines that we sang was, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There is still something about our fleshly nature that longs to rebel and alienate ourselves further from God in our guilt and shame. But it is in Christ that we may know to Him who is able to protect us from stumbling and to make us stand blameless in the presence of His glory without blemish and with great joy, says Jude, verse 24, 24. We have the gift of perseverance in Christ Jesus. Though we are prone to wonder, he keeps us in his grace. He is a high priest ever interceding and ever mediating on our behalf. And it is in Christ that we have the gift of reconciliation. That we're reconciled, restored, no longer alienated, but brought near to the God that we have rebelled against. But with that, dear Christian, he has entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 that we have been made ambassadors for God. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation because he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as we depart from this place this morning, we enter into a world of hostility against God and against our Savior. And yet we carry with us the message of reconciliation, we carry with us the message of hope and restoration that you who are alienated and hostile in your minds might be made new. And so that brings us encouragement as we share the gospel with our lost family member who has rejected the gospel for years, as we share the gospel with our, uh, our atheistic or uh, our, our separated and... Um, agnostic co-worker, we have hope of the ministry of reconciliation that God might see fit to work through us, that those who are alienated from God might be restored back to him through our ministry. Praise be to God. Let us go forth with boldness and courage, knowing that God might see fit to use you and me as weak vessels to reconcile those who are alienated back to himself. Sin alienates. And it separates, but God reconciles, God restores, and God redeems. The brokenness that we experience in our relationship with others is resolved only in submission to God and in reconciliation to Him. And the great tragedy of the human condition that we are separated from our Creator is resolved only through the ministry of reconciliation secured to us by Christ Jesus. Sin alienates and separates, but God, who is rich in mercy, comes calling to man. Where are you? Let's go to him in prayer. Oh God, we come before you thanking you for your grace and mercy shown to us in Christ. We thank you that we who are alienated and hostile in our minds, prone to wonder, prone to point the finger at others, blame shifters at heart, at enmity with you and hostile against you, have been reconciled in Christ Jesus. We pray that you would help us to live in light of that knowledge today, that in in Christ, we are made new creatures. Father, I pray that you would help us to uh, take the ministry of reconciliation to the world around us. And Father, we pray for the dear sinner who is here this morning, who does not know Christ, that you, by your spirit, would perform that ministry in their souls, giving them new life and giving them new birth, that they may know you. Call to them, O Lord, and draw them to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen.